the AWS for Software Companies podcast, episode 18, Unleashing the Power of Gen AI for Software Companies, featuring Chris Collett of Navin, Swapnil Paranjapi of Persistent, Gregor Stewart of Sentinel One, and Matt Thompson of AWS. everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. This week, we hear from several executive software leaders about how their organizations are approaching generative AI. This roundtable discussion features Chris Collett, Agile VP Engineering and SRE for Navin, Swapnil Paranjapi, Senior Data Practitioner at Persistent, Gregor Stewart, Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at Sentinel One, and moderated by Matt Thompson of AWS. Um, my name is Matt Thompson. I actually am the Director of uh, Compute for the Specialist Organization, so like both uh, business development and technical essays. Let me talk really quickly about generative AI at AWS. I would say there are probably four pillars that we're trying to invest in or that we believe in, right? Number one is we want to be super simple place uh, to work with foundation models. I don't think that's like we announced bedrock. And I think that's one of our core beliefs is that not everybody's going to want to build their own foundation model, right? So that's number one. Number two is, and this has been going on for a while and is near and dear to my heart is the, on the infrastructure side of the world, right, is we've been investing in our own custom silicon. Um, so when we think about GPUs, we obviously have accelerated instances like Tranium and Inferentia, and I would call that very early stage for us, and I think you're going to see a lot of innovation there from a cost uh, performance perspective um, in terms of silicon. So Tranium and Inferentia there. So that's number two for customers who just want to use infrastructure. Number three, obviously, just like most companies in the world today, basically believe that the developer experience is one that can be vastly altered or improved with generative AI, and so we have Code Whisperer there. So we believe in that as well. Uh, and then last, and this should be no surprise because Amazon's always about, we have many competing products uh, you know, coming out of AWS, um, but that's largely because we want customers to have a lot of choice, right? And so we think there are going to be uh, customers that want to use, like I said, our foundational models and are going to want to build their own, but there's other customers that are going to want to use the open source models. And so that, that fourth pillar is giving customers a continued choice there. So that's kind of our perspective on um, generative AI today and kind of what we've been investing in. And I think there's probably obviously more to come, but that's where we're at today. So let's go through from Swap, Neil, Chris, and then Gregor. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. So I represent a company called Persistent Systems. Uh, we are primarily a, a digital product engineering and enterprise modernization uh, company. We, as, as a product engineering company, we work very closely with ISVs, uh, both product ISVs, application ISVs, ranging from startups to mid-size to hyperscalers like AWS. And essentially, uh, our role there is to uh, uh, energize and accelerate, help accelerate their roadmap. So we are kind of a co-engineering partners for these ISV companies. And my role uh, primarily is a data architect. So I, I represent as a chief data architect on, on the enterprise as well as ISV side. Chris. All right. 
I'm uh, Chris Schlett. I'm VP of Engineering and SRE at Navan. My main role with regards to generative AI at Navan is basically getting the cycles going, right? Like finding the providers, finding the methodologies, finding the infrastructure in order to be able to deploy production applications at speed across the stack, and that's both Gen AI and ML, and figuring out how we utilize Gen AI to best serve, service the needs of our customers, both the people that are traveling and the people that are managing travel and expense programs. Gregor, I already called you out earlier, so. Hey. <laughs> so uh, I'm VP of Machine Learning Engineering and AI at Sentinel One, which is a kind of full spectrum security uh, technology company. Okay, okay, awesome. So, well, actually, I'll do backward first. So we'll start with you on this one, Gregor, and then we'll roll back this way. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious. So how much of your day-to-day -day is really generative AI? And especially maybe I'll give you a bonus question on, like, how much of that is still just, like, AI ML, not generative AI ML? So, like, how much of your work has turned toward that, and then how much of it is just blending from before? So right now, I mean, my work is 50-50 Gen AI, and then more general, the other, the other tasks I, I told you about, just getting people to understand these things. And the things that are tricky are not the typical use cases where, hey, I'm going to give it a bunch of information and I want a, you know, a structured summary. It's more using it for reasoning, production of like, uh, you know, uh, executable processes, procedures, right, you know, which conform to a specific standard, right, you know, that can interact with uh, people's normal practice, right. So genuinely, uh, it, a lot of my work, right, is now just sitting in there trying to get As these models to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What about yourself, Chris? What, what percent? I'd say, uh, you know, the AI ML portion of my job, it's, it's probably 50-50 between Gen AI and ML because we're in the middle of a replatforming of our, our core ML uh, algorithms, as well as, you know, we're in a search for value, a search for models, a search for techniques in order to drive forward all of our generative AI tasks that we've decided to take, in a, take up. So it's very much a, you know, it's an iterative process dealing with the engineers, understanding where they want to go, where the problems are, where the roadblocks are, how the techniques are shifting over time, and you know what does that mean for your suppliers? What does that mean for your models? What does that mean for your data model? And just trying to stay ahead of all that day by day. Hey, if you don't mind, I'm gonna linger on that one there, just on the techniques perspective. How much retraining have you seen in terms of the techniques, in terms of like your data science team or your engineering team? Uh, it's, it's been, I, I think, you know, in general, like the baseline generative AI techniques are similar to other things that people do in data science over time, right? Um, the problem is it's a lot fuzzier, I would say, a lot harder to gauge the quality of results than it was before, and so you need different methodolo methodologies to identify whether you're actually getting better or not, right? And um, you know, so, so there's been a lot of work there, but then, you know, the techniques, like, how do you steer these models, right? You know, prompting, embedding, you know, vector databases and things like that. Got it. And all of those are, you know, the best way to steer a certain model could change day by day or release by release or task by task. And so figuring out how to get the thing to do what you want in the first place and then, you know, how do you chop up the thing you're trying to do in, in small pieces for the appropriate model and technique, right? Yep, yep. We might come back to that later because uh, after we get into some use cases. So Swap Neil, same question. Like, how, how, much is, how much has this actually changed your day to day? So uh, I would answer it to two parts. So one is, you know, take, take the predictive AI use cases. What's happening is same use cases, customers are coming back and saying, 
what can Genega change for me? Because I already invested in those, so how can you get me uh, better accuracy, better personalization, so that customer adoption kind of end customer and business user adoption can go up. So these are, you know, that's like one sector of it. The other is uh, things like data migration or data security or quality engineering, like you said, you know, in terms of the engineering uh, pipeline, how do you get, uh, you know, leverage Gen AI and make, uh, bring value. So not only in, in terms of code, uh, code developer productivity, but also how do you automate the whole test process and test automation. That's, that's something we are seeing across the board. Got it, okay. All right, so let's get into specific use cases. Gregor had started this, but we'll sweep back this way and get to you at the end. So um, swap me, I'm gonna start with you in this one. All right, so we're gonna get into like, you know, the, I think the question's gonna be essentially like, why are you looking to incorporate Gen AI? I mean, I think there's probably some people out here that are like, uh, you know, I mean, do I really need to do this right now? Um, and so, you know, you kind of have, is there customer demand? Is it internal mandate, top down? Like, what's the why today for you, Swapnail? And then we'll go down. So, so, so coming from, you know, a company who is serving equally to ISVs, like product ISVs, application ISVs, as well as enterprise segment across, you know, our micro verticals, which are like healthcare, life sciences, banking, FinServ, insurance. What, what we are seeing is it is coming in terms of uh, efficiency. How do, you, uh, how do you improve efficiency? But at the same time, how do you... Uh, make make sure that what you already invested in, you don't want to like throw away and then mm -hmm. say that, oh, here is another new silver bullet and you know, I want to start spending on that, but I'm still not 100% sure, right? So majority of our customers are saying, okay, uh, if I have already invested in AIML uh, programs, can you bring value, better value X, you know? Um, so for you, it's definitely customer demand. Customer it it demand. is absolutely customer demand and, and then, because we work with ISVs, it is imperative that our code uh, developers, our test engineers, they, they kind of bump up their ability to serve better and faster. And so that engineering efficiency is another aspect, which is coming from our own internal uh, reasons, you know, because we, we have to be better for our ISV customers. So it's both, you know, end customer drive, plus our internal operational efficiency. What are, what are some good examples of products that you feel like, or features, whatever it may be, that you need to serve better via Gen AI for your customers? So I can, I can give you a quick example. We are working with a company called Blast Motion. So what, what they do is they uh, take these uh, baseball, baseball uh, clubs or uh, you know, golf clubs or baseball bats and okay. they embed uh, chips and essentially what it does is for players, uh, whether it's a high, 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 you know, high school player or a professional or somewhere in between, uh, it, it's able to track the trajectory of how they are playing, how they are using their uh, assets and then provide actionable insights uh, in terms of how they can improve their game. So basically be become a better uh, sports person, you know, whether you, you know, uh, but it has to be essentially a swing based uh, sports and uh, AIML was anyway part and partial of, of what they were uh, operating on. So Persistent has partnered with them and uh, you know we have leveraged some of the bedrock capabilities uh, to help them basically drive uh, more personalization depending on you know what uh, what sector uh, the player comes from, whether it's a high school student versus you know professional or somewhere in between. 
and and of course you know uh, deliver better actionable insights it's not just saying okay you know here are 10 metrics i'm showing it to you but based on the metrics that are being collected and then applying genai on top of that exactly what are the steps these individuals can take to to make their game better essentially be a better got player got it yeah. okay so chris kicking it over to you corporate mandate customer demand uh, I think pretty much it was a corporate mandate for us. So, you know, when ChatGPT exploded upon the scene, you know, our CTO and CEO saw it and saw the potential and how it could affect, you know, the traveler booking experience or people that manage a travel program, right? A big part of what we're trying to solve with Gen AI is, is um, you know, enabling agents, right? You know, we have a branch of our company called Rita Mackay, which is, you know, if you need a plane to fly out of, out of Afghanistan, they are the people to call, right? They know everything about the customers. They know what pillow they like, whether they want to be on the window side, like a sunny side of the hotel or the shady side of the hotel, all these other things. All these things have massive cognitive load. So if you think of a situation where I'm going to Tel Aviv for the first time and I want to be in a safe neighborhood in a hotel that I like that has free breakfast, that is within a mile from my office, that is going to avoid the protests in Tel Aviv and blah, 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 blah. You can imagine how difficult that is for an agent or for an algorithm to figure out. But with generative AI, we can really bridge that gap and you know, use the context we know from the customer itself, as well as other travelers' experience in the area. And all this like sort of fuzzy stuff, like you know, I, want, you know, I want something that's close and I want something that's safe and being able to mm -hmm. derive the actual meaning of those words and apply that to a set of inventory that we can then give to the customer. Got it. So, Gregor, coming back to you, so on this same thing, like, I mean, obviously, I think I saw that you switched companies and it seemed like you almost like from Medallia or something, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. came over, like, to partially do this? Am I wrong? So, yeah, I mean, I had been doing it for um, the better part of three years. If, yeah. you, if you were to go back and say, when did we first start doing it? It was right. three, three and a half years. So are you I part left. of a mandate then? Like, is that like the... Eh, no. So, so I'll, give you, I'll give you my two whys, right? So the first one is uh, frontier capabilities, right? Nothing can do what these things can do, right? And we want to do the things that they can do. Um, there's no known way, right, to solve some of these problems, especially in assistance and reasoning and so on, than, than these, these mechanisms. And it's damn hard to do it with those things, uh, you know, uh, let alone um, with anything before that. And the second one, though, right, and I, I see this more often, I do, I do some work for Insight Partners, looking at the portfolio companies and so on, try and help them um, adjust to this, this change too. And more often than not, they've got these highly wrought backends, right, where they've got very proprietary data sets, like very finely tuned algorithms, lots of steps in their pipeline and whatnot to achieve an outcome that you can now get in a single prompt step, which is utterly, you know, uh, it's devastating for them, right? Um, but, but now you can say, hey, you could take this Gen AI backend, right, drop it in, and now you have a much more um, flexible, um, easy to change, Right, you don't understand as much of it, perhaps. Right, you know, but now you've got a much more, um, a much simpler. Your your problem went from how can I keep all of these models and blah blah in sync to how can I make this Gen AI stuff cheap enough, right? You know, and uh, and learn how to keep it up, right? Um, you know, in order to serve this one thing, a massive simplification for many many tasks, right? And it doesn't need to be NLP. It can be lots of different data flows, right? That formally required, you know, uh, pass plus, you know, ML plus something else. It, it completely um, reduces the complexity there, right? And you can actually, a person can understand, right, what it's being, what it's doing, because you're requesting it to do that in plain English, right? 
Um, it's tricky to make it do the right thing sometimes, but sure is a lot more inspectable, right, than a general pipeline. So there's two reasons. The one is we couldn't do the things, um, what is it, that we want to do any other way. And also for other things that we could do other ways, it's just way simpler, even though it's more expensive, right? Since one of the questions was, or I think this has come up twice on this, and this, I think this might be interesting, which is there's the question of, like, how do we know it's good? Right, like I think right now, I think that's come up twice here in terms of like tests, like et cetera. Maybe you can give us, um, given the fact that you're all involved in it, give us a be some best practices on that, or what's the one learning you've got on figuring out like, oh, this is how I know this is good. I mean, I think when we go to like a ChatGPT or like, um, I mean, actually for me, it's Midjourney, for example. I'm like, I know whether that image is dope or not, right? Mm -hmm. Like kind of thing. So tell me how you though more on some of these I call. Not enterprise use cases, but they're a little different, right? How do you know it's good at the end? So there are two How do you test quality? Two things. Um, one is to have a very clear understanding, right, of what quality would be um, what is it, uh, in, at the human level, right? So if I'm working with a PM or the PM leadership and you want to say to them, do you know if a person did this job, how it would be good and so on, and get them to write that down, right? Now, because these models make human-readable stuff into machine-readable stuff and can take readable text and turn it into constraints, right? This is a very good source material, right, for, um, you know, for LM processes, right? So first of all, I get them to write down and I have a strong understanding of what, what, what it really means for it to be quality from there. Then we operationalize it, right? The usual way you would, you'd say, oh, okay, so summary quality is in some sense correlated with length, right? But give me some, you know, what's an ideal length, for example? That's a super simple one. But then when it comes to more complex criteria, like, oh, it has to contain this kind of information, and it should mention these things if they're in the source material, and so on. These are much more articulated constraints. The wonderful thing about the LLMs is that you can use them to check the output, right? If you have quality criteria, they can interpret those criteria from written form, right? And you can give them an output of a system, and you can ask it to evaluate that system, right? Um, the output of that system along those lines. It makes a hell of a lot easier, right, to see those things. Just so there's a reflection, uh, you know, with an X that you can use a pattern, right, between the two. Um, systems, the one that's producing the output and the one that's judging the quality, right? And that what mediates the, those things is the written description, right? Um, of the so is that like, that's almost like an adversarial GAN or something like that? Is that, that's what, that's how you're checking is model on model kind of thing? So model on model, and usually I'm pivoting out of, you know, I'm not using the same model to check um, that model, right? I mean, also what you're doing then is you're generating cases where it would make sense, right, for a person to look at it, right, and actually judge fine-grained, this is the last thing I'll say about that one, is it's super hard to go from something that sort of works, right, you know, to something that works really well, and it's even harder to go from something that works really well to something that's, like, awesome, right, because it's so hard for people to judge. It wouldn't matter what system was doing it, right? They find it very difficult to know, for example, are you being a good assistant, right? How would you know, right? You know when someone is being a good assistant, right? How would you know when someone is an awesome assistant versus a good assistant? That's very subjective, right? So now we're in this realm of where it's just as hard, and I'll go back to Jan LeCun, right? One of the uh, luminaries of this space, right? Where he's saying, someone asked him probably 2004, 2005, how do you debug these deep networks? And he said, how do you debug a student, right? Same problem. How do you evaluate quality? How do you debug these networks? You know? the same way you would, um, what is it, the actor you're trying to replace, right? Right, right, right. Chris, what about yourself? How do you, how do you, how do you assess quality? Yeah, so I think, I mean, 
first of all, we, we have a long-running NLP practice. So like taking a, a general like NLP model and moving it into um, a GPT model is, you know, the evaluation is the same, like derivation of intent and, and you know, that sort of thing. You can, you can compare apples to apples. But uh, yeah, in our case, I mean, we, we experimented first with just eyeballing the results, right? You know, and like, you know, for example, the word safe, right? We, we ended up in a situation where we were recommending these like two and three star ho hotels in bad parts of town because they had a safe on the premises. And somehow that got weighted in this giant matrix of stuff into the results. And so we were, you know, we were just like, okay, that's not right. But then we started exploring these bi bifurcated models where it's just like, here's the output have another model say, okay, does this make sense for the particular persona that we're, we're dealing with here? And we're, we're starting to figure out like how to chop up our users into different personas that have different travel biases, right? You know, a single person traveling to a city they've never been to before will have different needs from a person that's on the road 300 days a year, right? Got it. Swap, yeah. So, Ground truth or truth tables, those are not going away, right? So the ones that we have used in the past, obviously across different personas. And again, I will give you a very quick, small example. Yeah, we are working with a company where uh, we are trying to implement JNAI-powered contract analytics. So this is focused primarily for vendor management and legal team. So what we are doing is we are, uh, they have their existing interface that was you know, pre-JNAI. So we implemented Genia and then you know put it in front of them and then said, okay, A/B testing. Let's start you know looking at how 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 you grade and how do you give specific feedback. But it's not like just a UAT which is done in you know one week or two weeks. But essentially keep it running a little longer because unless it is operationalized within uh, you know within their core uh, you know way of working, where you know they, they don't have to realize that oh there is. Gen AI and hence I'm using it in, in a certain way. Right? Forget about how it was implemented, but just use it in, in the way you would naturally use it. And then, so that, that's what we are seeing. And, and the other way we are approaching is, whichever model we are using or whichever technology we are using, whether it's bedrock or whether it's from another hyperscaler, making sure that we implement some use case of that within persistent. For example, we have HR bot, which has gone across all the knowledge base that serves to answer employee questions. Okay. Whether it's payroll question, whether it's a maternity leave question, or it's like a very, very you know, detailed question about how do I create a list of questions when I'm supposed to re recruit someone for my team, right? So we, we are doing that and trying to do a judgment of how, how this. Uh... What about you, Chris, or, or Swapnil, on when to use uh, ML model versus uh, you know, something that's more generative AI based? I think a big case is when you've kind of reached the end of the, the rope with your current model set. Example for us was, you know, we used the NLP model that we worked on for a year, right? And the best we got, I think, was like 80% ability to derive customer intent when they were chatting in, right? Just like st replacing that back end with GPT took us to 90%. Yeah. Just straight out of the box, right? And then with some tuning, it got us, I think we got, we're up to like 94% right now. Which you can imagine, you know, when you're thinking about like using a, a front door to let to uh, manage customer support, 
how much that diverts, right? How much that services customer on their own time, their own schedule, mm -hmm. they don't have to wait for an agent, they don't have to re-explain their problem, et cetera, et cetera. So another percent is worth millions to us, right? So in those cases where you're just, you can't make it any better, I believe like these generative models can find new ways to break through. Okay, well hey, everybody, thank the panelists. I think we're at time. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.